0: There's still work to pick up on the back of the of the regulatory requirements, not not least the the vulnerabilities and remediating those. but now I think it's it's almost a mindset change to get into well, how do we manage operational resilience as BAU going forward. So we're moving from responding to an incident through business continuity to moving to prevent that so preventing that disruption through operational resilience. That was quite a hard, a difficult mindset change to land.
1: The mapping exercise has been very interesting in that it has surfaced, not only surfaced vulnerabilities, but it is also, um, I guess, raised the, the profile and visibility and priority that the firm puts on remediating those um, because, of course, the board have to, 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 to sign off a self-assessment listing those vulnerabilities. And it's now a regulatory requirement um, to then promptly remediate those vulnerability. So things that firms have really known about for quite a long time, but have never had um, the priority to be uh, to be dealt with promptly, that all of a sudden um, they're going up the uh, the, 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 the priority uh, and the board has an interest in uh, in sorting those vulnerabilities out. So I think that, again, is, is very positive. Um, and I think Lastly, but perhaps not least, um, as as firms have started looking at their scenario testing and testing their existing crisis management and um, business continuity arrangements, it's forcing firms uh, to think much, much more about how they communicate with customers when disruption does occur.
2: Hello and welcome to our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled. Our Grand Thorntons Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. In the last few years, we have witnessed a huge amount of disruption from a global pandemic to a geopolitical crisis, cost of living pressure, the climate crisis which is hanging upon us, whether we realise it today or not, and the list goes on and on. It is therefore no surprise that the topic of operational resilience is so central to the agenda of regulators, as naturally all these events have brought up a sharp focus on firms' resilience and how they withstand the challenges they face in today's world. We are indeed dedicating a second podcast episode on the subject now that the firms had until March this year to comply with the first round of requirements related to operational resilience, namely identifying the important business services and setting impact tolerances, but also to highlight again the importance of the topic. And for that, I have invited two practitioners today to share their experience as to what they have seen on the market, discuss how prepared firms in their view are, and some challenges they have seen being tackled, but also hopefully some tips for those organizations that are still on the journey. I'd like to first welcome Joanne Johnson. Jo has spent her career in the financial services sector and dedicated the last 23 years to risk management. Jo specializes in supporting organizations respond to regulatory requirements, as well as establishing risk management and enterprise frameworks. Recently, she has supported implementation of operational resilience from within an organisation, so great insight, knowledge and very practical experience. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi. We are also joined by David Yang, who leads our Ground Threat and Operational Resilience consulting work. David has over 20 years of consulting experience across banking, insurance and investment management, focused largely on operational effectiveness and transformational change. More recently, David has been leading a number of operational resilience advisory and assurance engagements for a range of UK financial institutions, including asset managers, building societies, mortgage providers, and a large and complex life insurer. And it is indeed great to have you today with us, David. Hi. Well, delving straight into you, I suppose. Um, As I referred at the start, firms in scope now had a year or so to comply with the first round of operational resilience requirements. And of course, they have until 2025 to meet the rest of the rules and demonstrate that they can remain within the impact tolerances as identified, and they should do that through a robust testing. However, from your experience, and the question is to both of you, of course, where do you think organisations find themselves in terms of, of readiness today? And maybe maybe David, starting with you, given your range of experiences recently.
1: Uh, yes, well, I, I think the firm's that have fallen into the scope of the regulations will have by um, by now uh, complied with the mandatory aspects of the, the regulations. So they will have um, identified their in, uh, important business services, mapped them, set anit- initial tolerances, and gained the relevant board sign-offs uh, that they need to needed to comply. Um, by March, uh, and they will, of course, all also have uh, rolled all of this up and submitted uh, an initial uh, self-assessment on operational resilience. Outside of the uh, the mandatory elements, though, um, most firms have just started their scenario testing and are. Uh, starting to ramp that up over the next uh, year or so uh, ahead of the 2025 deadline. Um, And many firms have also identified during their mapping exercises uh, a significant number of vulnerabilities which they're now looking to uh, prioritise and remediate over uh, over the next year or so.
2: Thanks, David. Yeah, makes sense. As as usual, the mandatory um, tests come first and then the rest of it, uh, as we know from our regulatory experience. And and Joe, you as an insider, if you like, someone who just had to do that, uh, do you agree with with what David was saying in terms of where where do you think firms are?
0: Uh, Yes, I would agree. I think um, the run up to the first tranche, so the regulatory requirements, was reasonably well structured in that everybody knew what they needed to do to comply and were responding specifically to those requirements. Um, It's my view that post um, becoming compliant with those requirements, what organizations are now is essentially on their own a little bit because we have a three-year period within which to demonstrate our IBS can perform within their impact tolerances which is quite a quite a quite an extended deadline Um, and so i think you know to david's point absolutely there's still work to pick up on the back of the of the regulatory requirements not not least the the vulnerabilities and remediating those but now i think it's it's almost a mindset change to get into well how do we manage operational resilience as bau going forwards it's quite a shift psychologically Mm, Um, and I, i it's my belief that some organizations will We'll struggle with that. There's also an element of us having, you know, ticked the box on March the 31st, uh, and and still kind of basking in having completed that because it was hard work, um, and now having to get our our heads and our strategies behind actually implementing the framework that supports the IBS going forwards.
2: You did mention Joe there a few times struggles and it's been hard work. What do you think has been perhaps the biggest challenge that firms had in the run up to? well let's say the first deadline of march 2022
0: Uh, i would say the volume of what's required um because you know you are identifying and and becoming um familiar with processes on on a vast level so so for organizations i supported it was understanding the business at a very granular level to then be able to make the um the decision on whether or not some of those businesses that rolled up to services made the cut as an IBS so it was it was the volume of work uh, that was required in the initial stages um, then in terms of the hard work thereafter it was it, it, you know it, I didn't struggle with getting engagement from senior members or, or board members but it is a different approach entirely, operational resilience. I know it's it's closely linked to business continuity, but in terms of um, the approach, it's very different. We're, we're moving from responding to an incident through business continuity to moving to prevent that or preventing that disruption through operational resilience. That was quite a hard, uh, a difficult mindset change to land.
2: And, and I guess, David, question for you perhaps, is that consistent with what we have seen with other clients? On the market, in
1: terms of challenges, uh, yes, I, I, I think so. So it's a, a new approach, and uh, as Joe has said, a, a large number of, uh, of of different dimensions that um, uh, people have got to uh, have had to get their heads around in a relatively short space of time. Um, so I, I mean, I think in in terms of challenges, uh, there would probably be three things that, um, that 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 have leapt out to me. Uh, across all of the the clients. Um, Firstly, um, an inordinate amount of time and effort was spent um, scoping the important business services and justifying why that population of of important business services uh, was relevant to the business. Um, And, you know, documenting the thinking that supported that justification ahead of board sign-off took an inordinate amount of time Um, once those IBSs had been identified um, mapping them to sufficient granularity again was a real challenge and there were a couple of fault lines which uh, I think have leapt out to me again universally across across clients Uh, one mapping from business the business process into core technology to sufficient granularity um, and making sure that there was that 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 end-to-end read across Uh, and then secondly mapping into third-party suppliers and the supplier database and looking then through into fourth parties and subcontractors and that that ecosystem. Um, and that has been extraordinarily challenging for particularly some of the larger and more complex firms dealing with hundreds of suppliers um, and mapping technology down to server level um, uh, has been a real challenge. And then I, th- I think the third thing uh, and perhaps more most important um, to me is the lack of understanding of customers that many organizations would appear to have. Um, so in terms of justifying the impact tolerance set uh, for an important business service and its disruption, starting with the customer and understanding the customer, um, why they might be in accessing the service, why they might uh, be suffer disruption uh, or the impact of that disruption, um and how they might suffer harm um coming up with a coherent narrative uh, across multiple ibs's has proved extraordinarily challenging
2: do you think they've got it right now i mean when you when you think about audio trails and the point you might at the start in terms of a big challenge documenting that do you think they've been con- fairly consistent in terms of how they've managed to record that or do you think there is still some outstanding work to be done for the audit trail going forward?
1: My view is there's probably outstanding work to be done. Um, I, I would say that uh, some firms have have, have tackled this um, far more effectively than others. The ones that have done well are the ones that have, uh, have, have got a lot of information about their customers um, uh, and the, the 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 segmentation the customer types uh, why they they use the services in the way that they do and how they might be uniquely vulnerable um in the event of disruption those firms have, have done well and, and 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 managed to present a, a compelling argument to the board on why they that they've chosen the tolerances they have um other firms have frankly, been uh, forced to start almost from scratch. Um, So those firms that uh, have had to uh, had to start from scratch um, have had to initiate exercises to find out uh, and source um, both quantitative and qualitative data points um, for the customer groups accessing each IBS. And that's been quite a challenge for them. Um, and of course, that exercise has to be done before they can think about uh, um, why customers might suffer intolerable harm, the first point at which those customers would suffer intolerable harm and therefore the point at which the impact tolerance must be set. Um, and of course, that justification has to be uh, has, has to be documented and, and compelling before the board will sign it off.
2: Mm. So it uh, sounds a bit more work uh, from from them yep. to be on their side if you like to be done. And and Joe, you, you have done this in an organization which is um, very customer led and very customer-oriented, picking up on, on David's point. Is this how you started it as well? Was that the center of your focus? And, and maybe if you can share your experience in terms of what you personally found most difficult to deal with. You mentioned that you didn't have challenges, for example, with senior stakeholder engagement, but what was your personal, if you like, um, big battle? <laughs>
0: I I think it was starting to have conversations about what operational resilience means. So the whole, um, you know, we are moving away from business continuity, which I always say is everyone jumping on a, you know, um, a minibus and going and making sure they can log in and take a call. So it's, it's very, very different in that we are doing the right thing by consumers and we are planning to prevent disruption as opposed to respond to it so that that culture change if you like was the was the trickiest bit Mm. once that had been done um and um you know key stakeholders were on board uh, what we did as an organization was keep referring back to why we were here so why we were doing this to david's point that this is about the consumer so this is about making sure our customers can continue to service without realising or being at all impacted by something that's happening in the background. I think what, what I found toughest was the dialogue around that. So we, even though the message had, and, and the requirements had landed extremely well where I worked, w- w- you felt as if you were on a loop. You were constantly reminding the project team, constantly reminding the stakeholders within the business why we were doing this. And that became really evident when we got to David's point to the impact tolerances. Because I think for the impact tolerances, that was when we actually first, you know, we we presented the IBS, we'd mapped the resources all fabulous bits of work. When we got to the impact tolerances, we were asking people to make a decision. And and that for me was when the, the dialogue and the reason why we were here and the rationale for where we were it got quite difficult uh, in terms of delivering that message so when I, when I reflect now you know it's 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 easy at this point to look back and say actually as an organization we landed that really well that for me is as you know the individual implementing or the lead for implementing that piece was the was the toughest message I think
2: yeah sounds very interesting is that because usually people shy from making decisions when it comes to something which is quite obviously high impact, failing new, or is that because we genuinely didn't actually know what the right answers
0: were? I think because it's at that point that it moved from theoretical to yeah. actually becoming real, you know? So, so, you know, there was never any challenge on why we were doing this. Um, the drive is very consumer-focused, which got enormous support. Um, as I said, as a project team, we constantly thought about ourselves as customers and what it would mean for us. Um, but when we we applied our impact tolerance, suddenly it became really real uh, and that's, you know, you kind of get this period that we're all signing up to and then we need to go and tell the regulators if we breach that. And it called into all uh, kinds of other considerations, including operational, technological, strategic costs, etc. So that that for me was when I think it became very real for people. Um you know and we had stuck to the strapline of why we were doing this and how great it was but but that that changed it was a, a big shift from from the theory into how we practically do this
2: yeah the realization that you are actually bound by it once you signed Yeah, right yeah and yeah, shall we talk a little bit more about the broader, if you like um implications positive or negative of, of the whole exercise so obviously you both referred to how much work had to be done by firms to prepare and that's usually associated with costs and resource challenges. But what do you think firms gained from that exercise? If anything, do you think there were benefits as well as the actual um, amount of work that had to be done? And maybe David, just because I've left you Simon there for a minute. <laughs>
1: uh, well, yes, I, I think that this has been beneficial for firms. Um what it has done is forced firms to think uh, uh, about how they deliver their services to customers in a very different way, um, particularly larger firms. Um, once you get into uh, operations and, uh, uh, and IT uh, functions, um, they historically can uh, have built up uh, a very internal firm centric view of the world uh, and what this is what this has done or has started to do is force firms to think um, more about their customers and the impact that they have on customers uh, on a day by day basis so they're, they're, they're forcing that external view um, through the organizations and I think that's an incredibly positive thing um, to do as Joe has said it is a culture change um, Uh, And I I think firms are still very much at the start of that journey, but nevertheless, I think it is a worthwhile and positive thing to do. Um, Secondly, I think um, it it has uh, surfaced vulnerabilities. and The the mapping exercise has been very interesting in that it has surfaced, not only surfaced vulnerabilities, but it is also... Um, I guess, raise the the profile and visibility and priority that the firm puts on remediating those, um because, of course, the board have to to to, to sign off a self-assessment listing those vulnerabilities, and it's now a regulatory requirement um, to then promptly remediate those vulnerabilities. So things that firms have really known about for quite a long time, but have never had um, the priority to be uh, to be dealt with promptly, uh, all of a sudden. Um, they're going up the uh, the, the the priority uh, and the board has an interest in uh, in sorting those vulnerabilities out so i think that again is is very positive um and i think Lastly, but perhaps not least, um, as as firms have started looking at their scenario testing and testing their existing crisis management and um, business continuity arrangements, it's forcing firms uh, to think much, much more about how they communicate with customers when disruption does occur. Um, so where perhaps in the past IT departments would be very, very focused on just fixing uh, a, a, an outage. Um, now there's very, very much more focus on, well, we need to communicate with our customers as as we're fixing the problem. Yeah, and, that's really and that's all very positive.
2: And hopefully, indeed, as you say, firms have picked up on that. Is that your experience as well, Joe? I mean, were there benefits to be gained?
0: Absolutely, and very similar to to David. So first of all, the IBS exercise um, was extremely um, satisfying arriving at the number of IBS and feeling very confident that we'd arrived at the right number and type, um, and it reflected our view of of where we place the consumer. That, that That was a really great exercise. Um, Resource mapping, similar reason, just identifying those um, uh, dependencies between each of those resources, you know, highlighting and and demonstrating to us through the methodology actually where the the exposure was to where our vulnerabilities were um, and getting the vulnerabilities in a place for um, remediation. So making sure that, you know, people understood what the risks were, the risks to the IBS that we'd found through through the vulnerabilities, etc. So it was just a very, I, I always equate it to a kind of a, a giant risk assessment, if you like, just looking at all of those processes. So we actually sat down for the first time and said, here is our business, here are our processes, here are our services, what's important to us and therefore w- what's at risk and how do we prevent or mitigate that? And then the key thing for me um, is aligning business continuity and incident management and sh- shaking those things up um so that you know now they aren't um tired or on the shelf actually they they support and become part of the operational resilience the, the wider framework um which having done the operational resilience exercise for me exposed incident management in a way it's kind of you know what do we now need to do with incident management that alerts uh, alerts us to a problem with our ibs and how quickly can we do that? So. Uh, yeah, there's lots of benefits to it.
2: If people are listening to you, they might suddenly think you, you must have had some sort of a magic bullet to find it so, mm-hmm. so the beneficial exercise, because I'm sure there's some of them who are still struggling um, and for them, perhaps. Do you have any sort of tips, if you like, practical tips, quick fixes or quick quick wins, if you like, that they may take away, for example, from that conversation and think, actually, we can incorporate that in our business or in our work and, and maybe it's going to be beneficial for us as well.
0: So I, 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 yeah, so a tip from me would be know the regs, you, you know, read the regs. If you are implementing, understand what it is that we are required to do. Um, as soon as you become familiar with what you're being asked to do actually the rest of it kind of falls in line because you can then always go back to the regs and the requirements thereof Um, the other tip for me would be networking so leading up to March 22 there was tons of it and some of it was good and some of it was bad so the good stuff was where we were um kind of sharing ideas and talking about approaches etc which was extremely supportive because you know we felt that we were in it together but conversely that that could also put pressure on you as, as an organization that you weren't ahead of the curve and you weren't on with your resource mapping so my, my tip would be do it at your pace um also keep a view or or adhere to the, the regulator's view which is this is our response as an organization so what they need to see is not just how we arrived at the ibs and our vulnerabilities and our plan for remediation but um why so why was that important to us if asked the question again to consider our ibs would we make the same decision you know will we arrive at the same the same ibs so stay true to who you are stay true to who your consumers are and as long as you do that, you can kind of, um, you know, confidently um, put your, I guess, your process and your approach forward.
2: Honesty and genuinity, always the right answer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and David, from your experience and what you have seen, what 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 you've observed works really well and could be used as a tip.
1: So um, for firms, that are perhaps uh, reaching the threshold conditions to fall into the scope of this. Um, I think the three tips that I would I would give people, first of all, um, spend a bit of time at the beginning, just making sure that everybody has a shared understanding of some of the key definitions for this. So as an example, um, do you have a clear understanding of what constitutes intolerable harm and what that looks like. And, uh, uh, and that then is an anchor for a lot of the uh, the stuff that comes later. So there is a difference between customer inconvenience, customer harm that is fixable, and intolerable harm that perhaps isn't fixable, and therefore is, is, is the point at which... Um, real damage can be done so that's that's the first thing the second thing is then in your thinking always start with the customer um so where firms for example who who struggled to identify their important business service population they didn't necessarily start with the customer they just listed out all of their operational processes and then tried to scratch their head and work out work out which one was was an important business service well actually if you think of the process from or services from the customer perspective i want to put money in i want to invest money i want to take money out um, I can't do one of those things. I want to con- contact the customer. I want to know how much co- I've got. Um, it's it's at that kind of level, and that that then makes um, the identification of IBS is much much easier. Uh, and again, the same, we've talked a little bit, bit about impact tolerances, uh, anchor it in the uh, the customer and understand the customer characteristics, how many people are accessing the service, why they're accessing the service, what their vulnerabilities might be um, while they're using the service. Uh, and that will make um, that will make the, the, the impact tolerance setting a lot easier. Um, I think the last thing, but not least, uh, is something that Joe touched on was was around building consensus uh, and keeping things simple. So at all stages during this this process, I found with all the clients, it's been an education and having to take both the exec and the boards on a journey uh, and explain not only the, the regulation, the justification for it, um but then keeping it simple in a coherent story that leads them to an easy decision um, and always ground that justification in the regulations so of the CISC-15 uh, rules, the must haves, um, uh, have that clear audit trail back to the regulation. We do this, it satisfies this CISC-15 um, requirement, um, but, 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 but make that story as simple. Uh, as possible
2: and and we see that quite often with lots of new regulations that there is a tendency by some organizations to actually over engineer things and indeed not necessarily arrive at the right answer whereas actually if you indeed keep it proportionate to your organization and pragmatic and honest to joe's point or do what's actually important to you um it is perhaps the, the right way forward um A little bit of a more speculative kind of question, perhaps, but how are you seeing firms are going to transition into 2025? Um, Looking ahead, if you like, what's the journey going to be like? Maybe David starting with you this time.
1: So I think, uh, as Joe said earlier, a lot of people have uh, have, um, got themselves over the March uh, hurdle this year and um, breathed a sigh of relief and thought, we're finished, but I I think there will be a very short honeymoon period uh, and then um, firms are going to realize there's still an awful lot of work to do. Um, And that will manifest in a number of areas. So um, some firms have got a lot of remediation to do uh, in terms of sorting out identified vulnerabilities. And for larger and complex firms that are PRA regulated, the PRA has made very clear that where vulnerabilities have have been identified, they expect them to be remediated promptly. So that's uh, that, that some of those vulnerabilities are number one on the on the lists. Um, we've got uh, scenario testing has in most cases started, but it's a very, very early stage of maturity. So scenario tests done to date tend to be fairly simple. They're testing single points of failure, perhaps single applications. And I think over time, the scope and scale of that scenario testing is going to have to become much, much broader and deeper. Um, Testing multiple points of failure uh, along uh, end-to-end IBS, perhaps involving third parties or fourth parties, um, multiple applications uh, going down, perhaps across multiple IBSs. Um, And so uh, there's a a big journey that firms will have to go on to ramp up that scenario testing to the level of, of sophistication they need to identify their points of failure. Um, at which they can no longer stay within within tolerance. That's a big exercise. I think, again, as as Joe's touched on, um, having set an impact tolerance with reference to customers and their vulnerability, there's a massive realignment that firms will need to do to realign their crisis management, um, business continuity and disaster recovery procedures and process to make sure that they can stay within the tolerances that they've set um, and communicate effectively with customers while they, they, they do it. So I, I would see a wholesale um, uh, revision of crisis management, BCPDR, um, process and those functions uh, to enable firms to do that um, and then I think last but not least there's an exercise to be done to just make sure that operational resilience is embedded um, fully into the opera- operation uh, and that's a cultural thing um, it involves uh, new governance forums to be um, uh, stood up and, and embedded down uh, and then um Integrating operational resilience and embedding it into the enterprise risk management framework. Uh, Again, I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done there um, to make sure that that's seamless and and, and joined up and and revisiting um, risks and controls uh, and ownership for those uh, with, with, with the new operations resilience lens you listen to so, so many on?
2: things that I'm thinking there's no honeymoon even involved here in that whole story um it's just going to be a lot of further work to be done and I think Joe, do you have more to add to that, <laughs> that really complicated picture already in you know, a David. before uh,
0: no abs- absolutely agree with everything David just said I think for, for me it is embedding operational resilience and that's So that, to touch on David's point, operational resilience becomes second place. So it becomes comfortable um, that we can demonstrate on an ongoing basis the performance of those IBS. So having identified these are our important business services is what matters to us. How do we oversee and manage and challenge the performances uh, of the IBS within their impact tolerances and what are we doing to fix that? So on an ongoing basis, as David said, that will be scenario testing, um, remediating the vulnerabilities that come out of not just the initial activity, but ongoing scenario testing, making sure that we're keeping the IBS comfortable and safe. but also adapting the IBS as our businesses change and adapt. So if we move further into transformation, become more uh, digitally based, what does that mean for the IBS? What does that mean for our, our consumers, et cetera? So keeping it keeping it alive. And that for me is keeping it front and center of all of our governance processes. So that's around product design, change, et cetera transformation programmes, do we consider operational resilience as central to that activity or just a tick box at the end? So, and that goes back to the culture piece. But the other one for me, I think that's really important is, is embedding ownership and accountability for the IBS. So it sits with the 24, the SMF 24, but actually the performance of those IBSs can be delegated down to IBS owners. So we're getting further and deeper into the organization and we're talking about ownership and that's the ownership of the performance of the IBS and overseeing and making sure that the IBS is performing in a way that we said it would when we submitted our self-assessment, which leads me quite nicely onto the ongoing housekeeping around OpsRes. So there's an annual review of the IBS, the resources, our vulnerabilities, our scenario testing plan and our self-assessment. So it's a you are embedding um, a process, and I think to David's point, where that sits within the the ERM is is really really important because what we have to do is make sure that we we uh, mitigate um, and plan against the risk to our to our IBS going forward.
2: Yeah,
1: I think that's an important point that you you raised in terms of um, the. the the effort uh, around doing the annual self-assessments and the resources uh, dedicated towards that, I I would see longer term. Most most of the firms have set this up on a a highly manual basis, Um, but longer term, um, I would see uh, certainly the larger, more complex firms will need to automate some of that to make it more efficient. Uh, a number of thinking of setting up operational resilience databases uh, linked into underlying databases, configuration management databases for for technology, for example, um, to make that reporting um, uh, and keeping uh, the mapping of resources up to date on a more automated basis. Um, So that that automation around self-assessment and uh, 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 and maintenance of uh, of mapping and, and resources I would see um, perhaps beyond 2025 it, it, it is going to be uh, it, it is going to come to the fore
0: I think so and I think perhaps one of the ones that I've missed from that is is what comes out from the regulators you know so if there's a thematic review on on the, in, the initial tranche what what did they find what were they comfortable with how do we gap that and respond to that going forward? so it's it's definitely not one and done of resilience. And it, you know we when we've talked about this previously, David and I on a number of occasions, it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do because it's protecting our consumers. So I think if we just you know remember that, remind ourselves and that, remind our organizations of that, um then I think uh, that's not a bad thing.
2: you You touched. Jo that but I probably wanted to finish on a slightly more difficult question indeed but I know it's one that our listeners would be grappling with and it would be really interesting to hear your views but we, uh, where do you see the regulatory developments on that so what we see very often happens is with new regulations as you mentioned there is a thematic review some further work done by the regulators which results in some sort of uh, amendment of the requirements which kind of makes it quite challenging for firms sometimes actually to make the necessary adjustments are you both seeing any angle that you think is going to crystallize in terms of changing regulations maybe yeah Joe, just
0: because you, you mentioned first. yeah I wonder if I wonder if because it because all of the organizations responded you know it, As they saw fit, I I wonder if regulators might say there is, um, you know, a a wide variation in the granularity of our IBS. So at what level um, have we submitted? Is it is it too high or is it uh, too far in the reads? So for me, that might that might course adjust um, based on what they've seen across the industry. And then, of course, if there are any. incidents out there or or any any kind of um, you know um, assessment by the regulator into into submissions by organizations that that might drive other changes. Um I'm trying to think of something specifically. yeah, say for example, there's an there's an incident uh, and an IBS is breached, and um, we're all made aware of it, whether or not that drives a change in some of the impact tolerances, whether or not indeed they thought we all kind of went very safe with our impact tolerances and need to need to move the dial a little bit that would have an impact um, Something on the which framework. is
2: systematic as in the whole system yeah. basically and causes disruption if you like across the board yeah. yeah
1: yeah
2: what what would you think on that david
1: uh well yes i mean it, it's interesting the um the regulators um have made a point of not being prescriptive uh, to date through this and, and, and made it very clear to firms it's for them to um, decide what's important uh, to their customers and therefore um, how they how they do this so that the regulators haven't really come off the fence yet on, on what good looks like on on some of this and I, I think a lot of firms are very keen to see uh, uh, Evidence of the regulators coming off the fence, perhaps with follow up questionnaires uh, or or, or thematic reviews, which which then um, give that some of that clarification in terms of what good looks like, I think, I mean, in terms of some of the uh, the areas that uh, they might choose to uh, to probe um, or pull together uh, strands of regulation, cyber is 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 an element which is um, uh, very much uh, in the regulators uh, sites at the moment it is an area that um, uh, i think firms need to, to focus on um and it wouldn't surprise me at all if 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 they if if they were to look at this area uh, um, with a kind of operational resilience uh, overlay what does this mean in practice in this area and I wouldn't wouldn't be at all surprised yeah. if that were an area I- of further probing
0: i would agree uh, with that uh, particular issue yeah, sorry, Dave, particularly as um, organisations move forwards digitally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree totally.
1: Um, so cyber resilience, one to watch. Um, and then I I, I would um, I, I would suspect that a year, 18 months down the line, we're probably going to see Section 166 is come through where um, the regulators uh, decide that um, uh, remediation efforts on identified vulnerabilities have not been um, sufficiently robust or timely. And therefore, Section 166 activity starts to learn to, uh, uh, to, yeah. to to sort that out with some of the bigger players.
2: I would expect actually a lot of um, risk management focus, Section 166 is to incorporate the subject around yeah. op resilience even before any op resilience specific regulatory intervention. Um, but I can imagine do you see your letters coming and similar as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) once they realize where firms are and and what's perhaps not working so well well thank you very much both for that conversation it's it's been great talking to you and really um, very informative uh, in terms of you sharing your experience and your knowledge and I'm sure our listeners have picked up some really lots of useful tips sounds there is an agreement there's a lot has been done already uh, by organizations but from my understanding, no Honeymoon because there is even more to be done. So uh, I hope um, I hope that you need have benefited from that conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you very much uh, for that.
0: Thank you, thank you.
2: And on that note, thank you to all our listeners as well. You can sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory Newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And to stay up to date with the upcoming episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Amazon Music. We'll be back with our next episode next month on other exciting regulatory topics. Thank you again and goodbye.